Okay, guys, we are going to get started. Let's let's do what we always do as we start. We'll um, refresh our memory as to why we are here. So turn your notebook over to the back side. Well, we do that too. That's important. But we're going to turn over to the back side first. We're going to review through those disciplines that we are trying to unite ourselves around. Obviously, we're, we're not. We want to put all things, give them their proper weight. Um, we want to unite around Christ, around Jesus. He is the only one worth uniting around. Um, so we're not trying to substitute Jesus out for some disciplines, some spiritual disciplines. Um, but we hope that in uniting around these spiritual disciplines, they will actually point us to Christ and help us to um, be more faithful to him. So let's refresh our hearts with that. And it all begins with you being a man who uh, takes care of your own heart. And by heart, what do we mean? We don't mean a part of you, like your physical heart is a, is a part of you. Your heart in scripture is the inner man. It's who you are inwardly before God. It's the part, it's not the part, it's who, it's where he goes to deal with you at the inner man level. Um, your inner man can be separated from your outer man. Paul says, though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed. That's what the heart is in scripture. First uh, Peter 3, when Peter is talking about the wife, he talks about the inner person of the heart. That's what we're talking about. Is you, um, once you become a Christian, once God makes you new, causes you to be born again, you now have a capacity that you never had before to be able to shepherd your inner man to God. Before Christ came, your inner man, you desired to do nothing to shepherd it towards God. Um, But being a new creature in Christ... The inner man, now you have a capacity to shepherd yourself to God, to direct your heart, um, to bring influences to your heart that will draw your inner man closer to God. So, um, your it all begins there with you shepherding your heart toward God. And the primary tool that God gives you to do that is his word. Um, That is the place where God has most clearly revealed himself in this world. He's revealed himself in creation. We receive many wonderful things about him in creation. But the place where he has revealed himself most clearly is in the word of God. And the word of God, first and foremost, before it is other things, it is the revelation of a being. It It is the revelation of a person. Okay. It is also a a theological storehouse. It is a, uh, It has great instructions for living. It is all of those things as well. But first and foremost, it is the place where God reveals himself as a being, as a person. And when he saves you, your biggest problem in the world is that you didn't have Christ. It's not that you didn't have the right set of rules. It's not that you didn't try hard enough with the right kind of rules. Your biggest problem in the world was that you were Christ-less. You were Jesus-less. You were God-less. And so how does God fix that? When he saves you, he gives you Jesus. He gives you himself. And so what you want when you come to the word of God is you don't want first and foremost, I'm not a heretic, listen carefully. 
He doesn't want you... You come to the Word of God first and foremost not to get all the rules. You come first and foremost to the Word of God to get the God who reveals himself there. And in getting that God, you get all of his rules for living. Do you understand? Okay? So, just a reminder, as you come back to reminding yourself, why am I in the Bible today? You need to be able to answer that question. When you wake up in the morning or whenever it is you're with God's word, you you pull yourself before it, you need to ask yourself the question, why am I here right now? Why am I here, prayerfully speaking, before God's word? Why am I here? Oh yeah, I'm here to meet with you, God. And the place that you revealed yourself to me most clearly is right here in these pages. And I want you. I desire you. I worship you. I love you. I fear you. I want to obey you. I need you. All of those things come out when you have the Word of God open. It is very possible to open your Bible and to get out your checklist of the chapters you're supposed to read for the day, read that, check it off, and close it and feel good about yourself. Because you read your Bible. Now you can tell your small group you read your Bible. You can do all of that and have completely missed God in that time in the Word. And that's not to say that he won't bless it anyway. I mean, look, he only, all he does is bless us in spite of who we are, right? But that's, don't settle for that. Come to the Word of God because you want to personally worship and draw near to God. If you are that kind of a man, everything else falls into place in life. Everything else. That doesn't mean you'll have an easy life. But it means that you have a, a chance at the other things in life being full of Christ. You being a man full of the Spirit of God. You being a man who's richly, the Word of God is richly dwelling within you. Um, so you've got to start there. It all begins there. You never graduate from that. You'll always wrestle and struggle with dragging your sorry carcass to the Word of God. It'll, you, you may always be challenged with that. Um, but you do it, and you do it, and you do it. Okay, Develop that into a discipline. Upon that taking place in your life, you then uh, also focus on uh, discipline two, which is on the home. The first place that you should make an impact as that kind of a man whose heart is after God in Scripture, the first place you should make an impact is in your household, not in your place of work. Not in, you want to make an impact in those places as well, but what, what good is it if, as a man of God, you skip over your household to try to make an impact at work, at church, at school, wherever, and you neglect the people you live with? Those are the key relationships. And, and many of you guys are, are single and you live at home, or you, and you, you don't have any roommates. But I know, I know a guy named Ryan who uses his household like crazy to get people into it um, so that he can impact them in his household. Um, that's good preparation for a day when there's other people in your household who will be living under your care. Okay. Um, as you're doing that, you're then ready to step into discipline number three, the ministry. That's what we're going to start talking about today. We're going to look at the life of Paul. Um, as you are a man who's shepherding your own heart to God and his word, and as you are caring for the people in your household, and you're not playing leapfrog over them either, as you step into the lives of people outside of the church with the gospel, inside of the church who don't have the gospel, inside the church who do have the gospel, and you're bringing gospel ministry to them, you have a life of integrity. You have one that people look at and they say, 
That, that's, a, that's a trustworthy man. That's a faithful man. I, he's got something to say. I, need to, I, I want to listen to his influence. But where we lack integrity with our own hearts and where we lack integrity in our households, we necessarily bring into our ministry lack of integrity. And so we want to make sure that we're consistent, working from there. It's not first grade, second grade, third grade, okay? Like you graduate from first grade and you never go back, and then you go to second grade and you, never, and you graduate and you never go back. It's like concentric circles and it's always the same, right? It's the one big circle you're after, and in the middle of it's your heart, your household, and ministry. Discipline four, we try to focus you in on specifically on the deacon qualifications. Those deacon qualifications spelled out in 1 Timothy 3 really will help you understand what it means to be a man whose heart is after God, what it means to have your household under your control, and what it means to care for people well in ministry. Those qualifications really can slot themselves into any one of those first three disciplines. Same thing with the elder qualifications. So as you look through the elder qualifications and deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 for elders, see sometime as you read through them, which ones talked about me as my heart before God? Which ones focus on me and my household? And which ones focus on me as I'm in ministry with people? That's really what those qualifications break themselves down to. Discipline five <clears throat> that we're calling men to unite around is, is on the hermeneutic or on the way to interpret the Bible. Uh, we're going to talk about that. If you look at your um, calendar, you'll see that we're going to spend three sessions in a row on that starting in, at the end of March. That's one of my favorite ones to, to do towards the end, especially after we've been focusing all year on being the right kind of man before the Word of God. Then we step and we start talking about, okay, now how should we interpret this word? Um, that's that's a that's an exciting time, and we'll talk about that. Lastly, the last discipline, <coughs> discipline number six, is all about Grace Bible Church and what we're focusing on um, in terms of a biblical vision and a gospel purpose. We want our sights on the Bible, and we want to be purposeful about the gospel mission where we live. God has the best strategy. Your elders and <coughs> other ministry leaders in this church could never program as well as what God has already programmed in your life. Did you know that? Where you live, where you play, where you socialize, where you work, where you study, over and over and over, he has you in, lo- in connection with the same people over and over and over. And what matters is that you are a faithful witness of Jesus Christ in those places. Um, should we program and do other things as well as a church? Yes, we should. And that's good to do. But if we program and we all run to the program and we're excited and we feel good that we took the gospel out someplace, but we're not being faithful where we live in that better program of God's, we've deceived ourselves into thinking we're okay when we're not. And so the push is first, be faithful where God has you. It's the best evangelistic program anybody could put in your life. Okay? So we want a biblical vision and we want to live out the gospel purpose that we have um, from Christ. So that's what we're calling ourselves to unite around. We want all of the men to be here um, uniting around that. So with that being said, we should pray. Because who can do this in his own power? Um, I can't, you can't. So let's pray and then we'll ask God to help us with our day today. Father in heaven, we do ask for help. Um, But even before that, Lord, we just acknowledge that as men, what we need more than anything is you. 
and that we are here to draw near to you together today, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would enable us to do that, that whatever obstacles and obstructions are in our path, keeping us from fellowship with you, Lord, that you would help us to forsake them, um, move them out of the way, clear the distractions, confess the sin, turn from it and trust you to take one step in obedience to you. Help us to encourage one another this morning as well, Lord. Uh, Let us not just think about what each one of us must drink in, but help us to take our eyes off ourselves and also put our eyes on those around us and care for them and encourage them to pursue Jesus by your grace. Lord, I pray that as we um, have just walked through these disciplines, reminding ourselves again, Lord, I pray that you would give us strength to be faithful in each one of these um, leadership spiritual disciplines and that God, as a result, um, yes, each man here would be strong and faithful to your son, Jesus. But also, God, we have a greater design, and that is that Grace Bible Church would be filled from top to bottom and side to side with faithful men who are, who will be able to teach others also, men that you can entrust the gospel to, to advance the church into the next generation. Um, so, God, we are here this morning for ourselves, but we are also here this morning for future generations of Grace Bible Church, and we're here for future generations of believers um, who maybe haven't even believed yet in faraway places in the world as we send out faithful men who are able to teach others the gospel. So, God, I pray that you would use this time, that you would bless it, that you would take these feeble efforts, and um, that you would make them have eternal significance in our lives. And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we will, um, we're will. we starting today on Discipline 3. We're going to spend two Saturdays together talking about uh, Discipline 3. Um, what, you guys are going to make Daniel sit at the newlyweds table? I mean, <laughs> 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 I got room for you. Um, so take your Bibles. Let's open them up to First Thessalonians chapter one. And I, um, this last year and a half or so in small group, well, it, it's been it's been a while. It's been even before that. We went through First Thessalonians, and um, it was so helpful for me to to do that, and and uh, then come back and revisit these two lessons from chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we're going to do because I understand the time frame so much better and I, and I hope that maybe you'll even understand what, what what's in the mind of Paul, what Paul's gone through as he writes this. First Thessalonians is very interesting. You actually find very, very little on the actual content of the gospel in it. What is the gospel? I mean, like you have verse 9 and 10. Um, that you turned to God from idols to serving a living and true God to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. But it's nothing like a, a letter like Romans where Paul is just spelling out the gospel and, and there's theological implications from that. And it's, it's, it's just not like that. It's not like Ephesians. It's not like Colossians. It's, it's a letter from a, from a pastor missionary who is burdened for the people that he can't be with, that he wants to be with. And he's concerned about how they think about him 
in all of the right ways. It's not a fear of man issue. Oh, I wonder what you think about me. It's not that. It's in all of the right ways, as you'll see. And so it's really chapters 1 and 2 are perfect places to go to in the New Testament to look at not necessarily what's the content that you give, but what kind of carrier of the gospel must I be? It's not so much about the message of the gospel, it's about the messenger of the gospel. That's what we want to talk about in Discipline 3, is you, is you need to be the right kind of man who brings the gospel to bear on other people's lives. So to do that, we better pray and ask God to help us, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is um, not uh, just a reflexive, um, thoughtless thing we do to pray and ask for help. It's not a quick prayer we throw up before we eat, um, but this is um, truly um, comes from a desire within us that we feel our inability when we look at your word, and so much is at stake when we look at your word. You want to reveal yourself and, and much, much more here. And so we pray, God, that um, we would be alert, that we would be focused, and that our hearts would be softened by you so that we can receive your word implanted because we don't want to just be a hearer of the word. We want to be a doer of it. And so, God, please draw near to us as we draw near to you now. Show us what gospel ministry looks like. Make us into the messengers of the gospel that we must be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 1, primarily verses 5 to 10. And we're going to look at five different ministry statements, just statements about ministry, observations about ministry to help us understand um, discipline 3. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read all of chapter 1. You can follow along as I do that. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now an explanation. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So we're going to make five ministry statements to help us understand discipline number three. Here's your first one. Number one, ministry has only one message. I filled in your blanks for you this morning. I wanted to save you time because the energy to write out. Message could be tough. Spelling can be an issue sometimes. So ministry has only one message. It's the gospel. Look what he says in verse five. 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul um, is affirming positively that the gospel indeed did come to them. He's saying it just didn't come to you in word only. Um, to, to show you that Paul is concerned that the message of the gospel came to them, look at chapter 2, verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. We speak that gospel. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Look at verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul, in this letter, wants to make it clear that there was only one message that came to him. It was the gospel, and it did come to them. But in verse 5, he's saying, it didn't just come to you in word only. Okay, but we're going to focus on the how else the gospel came to them. But um, I don't want to miss first just the opportunity to say ministry only has one message and it is that gospel. And that is the Apostle Paul. You understand that to be the Apostle Paul. Now, let me, let me help you understand what happened in Acts as the gospel did come. Okay, well, Let's go back. Keep your spot in First Thessalonians here because we're going to be turning back and forth. But go back to Acts 17. I want you to see this. I want you to see the flow of of what happened. It'll give you a greater appreciation for what Paul is going through and why he's writing what he's writing. Okay? Acts 17. Verse 1. I'm just going to read for a little bit here. Watch this. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay? So this is when Paul and his missionary team came to Thessalonica. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, uh, the, the gut re- reaction that most people have when they, when they read that is that Paul was only there for three weeks. Um, what that verse says is that he reasoned with them for three Sundays or three Saturdays for them for the Sabbath. Okay? Um, but it's most likely that he was there for probably no more than three months. But what um, Luke is writing here is he wanted to say that he reasoned specifically <coughs> with them in the synagogues for three Sabbaths. Uh, what was he doing as he reasoned with them? He was explaining, verse 3, and giving evidence that Messiah had to suffer, rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is Messiah. So there's the gospel. Messiah had to suffer. Messiah was raised from the dead. And I'm proclaiming to you Messiah. Those are those three, like that's that three-legged gospel stool that you see over and over and over again in Paul whenever you see him preaching somewhere. Messiah suffered. Messiah was raised from the dead. And I'm proclaiming to you forgiveness of sin in his name. The name of Jesus. Okay? Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, 
formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. His Jews are so concerned about Caesar getting his due. Um, They stirred up the crowds and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away from Thessalonica to Berea. And they, uh, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So that's when Paul left. Probably a matter of no more than three months' time he was with them. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. Now watch this. And Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Okay, so here's what we're left at that point. Timothy stays, Paul goes, and Paul gave Timothy a command. And Timothy, when he's done fulfilling the command, is supposed to come find Paul. Right? Okay. Now, go to, uh, back to 1 Thessalonians and keep your spot in Acts. Now, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Now, we're going to find out what Paul was going through when uh, he's going to describe that separation. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. What does that tell you about when he had to leave? He wanted to get right back, but he couldn't. For who is our hope or joy or crown or exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Now, let's keep reading and find out what Paul was thinking. Therefore... When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens only. And if, in Acts 17 and verse 16, where we left off, it says, now while Paul, Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so that's what Paul's talking about, okay? Um, we thought it best, best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, remember? He gave Timothy a charge. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So what did Paul do? Paul couldn't get back, but what did he do? Paul couldn't get back to Thessalonica, but what did he do? He sent Timothy back. So that, verse 3, no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, go back to Acts 17. That's all while Paul leaves Berea, goes to Athens, and you know Paul has his uh, 
amazing time there in Athens and he reasons with the, the, the philosophers and the wise men um, at the Areopagus. Now look at um, Acts 18. After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife. Now remember, where we're at right now, Timothy hasn't come back yet. So Paul, all he wants is to go back and see him. He can't. He can't see the Thessalonians. So what he's done is he's done the next best thing that he can do. He sent Timothy, and Timothy is gone, but he hasn't heard from him yet. And now he's left Athens, and now he's in Corinth. Okay? He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now watch this. Um, Verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, okay, so now he's come back from being at Thessalonica, and he's given to Paul a report about how they're doing in Thessalonica. Watch what it says. When that happened, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. What they think is going on here is that when Timothy showed up, what was Paul doing? Paul was doing what Paul always does. He was reasoning in the synagogues and he was going after it. But when Timothy came and he got the news that the Thessalonians were were doing well, he was unleashed to completely devote himself to the word. Now he could really minister to the Corinthians because he was assured of what happened in Thessalonica. What happened in Thessalonica? Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So Paul, right there, as he's writing from Corinth, is thrilled. And now he can completely devote himself to the word of God because he has the news that this fledgling group of people that he just brought the gospel to, three months in the Lord at most, He has assurance that they love Paul, they miss Paul, they want to see Paul, and now you get to find out in about a matter of three months or or more what kind of believers these are in Thessalonica. Remember, at first what was said was the people in Berea were more noble-minded than them because they examined the scriptures themselves. And now you get to find out what happened to the Thessalonians here shortly. All right, so Paul, you know what Paul's like. He only has one message. It's the gospel. And he said, it came to you in word. But it didn't come to you in word only. Uh, It came to you with power. Chapter 1, verse uh, 5. It came in the Holy Spirit. And it came with full conviction. Now, um, as we step... Let's just talk about what this means for us. Um, As we step into the lives of others, 
um, our leading concern must be what Paul's leading concern always was, and that is um, there's only one message to give. We don't have another message. Our only message is, is Jesus suffered as a substitute in the place of sinners, um, that he was raised from the dead, and in his name I proclaim to you forgiveness of sin. Repent and believe. That's our message. There is no other message, right? Um, and notice that what Paul says, how does he, what describes, how's the gospel modified in verse 5 of chapter 1? Don't look at me, look, at, look down. Look at, how does verse 5 start off? For our gospel. Um, that's ownership. Paul is saying, um, th- this is our gospel. In, in a Romans 16, verse 25, he says, my gospel. Now, let's be really clear. Um, let's talk about what Paul doesn't mean. Paul doesn't mean that this gospel came from him. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead um, according to the scriptures. So this is the gospel that he has received. He didn't invent it. Um, it's not his invention that belongs to him, the inventor. It is his because the gospel was given to him. Look at chapter 2, verse 4 of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, that's what he says. It's my gospel. It was entrusted to me. He has ownership of it. The aroma coming off of Paul in verse 5 uh, of chapter 1 is that he owns this gospel. It's his. It was entrusted to him. And I, look, you and I are not apostles. And we never will be. But I think there needs to be some kind of a sense of uh, pointing in that direction for us that we would own this gospel to. It's been entrusted to us. Um, and we need to take this gospel that has been entrusted to us and, and you need to be able to say this is my gospel. Not in the sense like Paul could say it but in a sense it's been trusted to you. Um, That's a bold statement to make, isn't it? So, our gospel did come to you, Paul is saying in verse 5, it just didn't come to you in word only. Um, So what's the burden that's beyond this, that that follows this leading concern? Number one, ministry has only one message. That's his leading burden. Here's the second burden. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger, verse 5. Now, now we're moving slowly, and we're going to keep moving slowly for just a little bit because verse 5 is so important. So ministry has only one message, but equally so, ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Okay? Um, This is what carries so much of the weight in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Paul puts so much emphasis upon the messenger uh, at the first part of this letter. Um, The carrier of the gospel gets a lot of attention not as much attention on the content of the gospel, okay? Um, because evidently what happened in Thessalonica is those Jews who were attacking, they were not attacking the content of the gospel. What were they attacking? The carrier, the men, the messenger, okay? So the focus for Paul then becomes, I'm going to give an explanation of the kind of men we've been, okay? That's important, 
Um, he doesn't want there to be any chance that if, they, if the Jews could discredit the man, maybe the Thessalonians will go, well, maybe it wasn't a good message. He doesn't even want to allow for that possibility. Now, Paul says the gospel came to them, but it did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Three prepositional phrases, okay? In power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And, and the question for us to answer is, what do these three prepositional phrases describe? Okay, and you have two options, and you can see it there in your notes. The three options, or two options are, uh, the three prepositional phrases describe the gospel message itself. The message came, and it had power. The message came, and it was in connection with the Holy Spirit. And the message came, and it brought full conviction. Now, those three things are theologically true and are taught in many other places, aren't they? And the question is, is that what Paul is saying? And that is not what Paul is saying. And it's about the gospel messenger. So understand this. This is going to be. This might seem strange to you at first. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul and his co-laborers came in power. Paul and his co-laborers came in the Holy Spirit. And Paul and his co-laborers, and in the Holy Spirit means in connection with the Holy Spirit. And Paul and his co-laborers came with full conviction. And you say, well, how do you know that from our text? Well, look down. Look at verse 5. Look at how these three phrases are sandwiched between two other important statements. What's the first important statement? The gospel didn't come to you with words only. In other words, he's trying to point them away from the content. And then what follows right after the prepositional phrases? Just as you know what? What kind of men we prove to be among you? Okay, so the first part of verse 5, he's, he's almost trying to say, look, the gospel did come to you, but not in words only. And then the last part of the verse says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. And in between that, you've got three prepositional phrases. In power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. What's it describing? It's describing what the verse is all about. The kind of men that they proved to be when they were with them. When Paul thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, what Paul remembers is the power of God that accompanied his ministry. And what Paul remembers is that the Holy Spirit was tangibly present, empowering him, And what he remembers is that he had full confidence, full conviction, full confidence. He was fully convinced when he was with them. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. That's like a parallel statement with chapter 1 verse 5. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, the word didn't come to you only in words, but also we imparted our very lives, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. See, those are parallel verses. And so Paul is putting the burden, he's now addressing the burden of the kind of men that he was, or that they were when they were with him. Um, And you know what, as we've been going through Acts over the last year, this only, in my mind, as we've worked through up to chapter 9, this is only confirmed by Acts. The whole role of the Holy Spirit, as Luke is concerned to display, 
is that the Spirit came for the purpose of power for the witnesses. And this is what Paul was in Acts during that time. He was a man in power, in the Spirit, fully convinced of what he was. And that's what Paul is defending before the Thessalonians because the attack was on the carriers of the gospel. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you just attack the carriers. We came in power. We came with the Holy Spirit and we were fully convinced. Okay? So gospel ministry requires, it has only one message, right? There's only one message. Um, But it also requires an uncommon messenger. And and I think the challenge... um, I think the challenge for me, uh, maybe the challenge for us, is um, if we err on a side, I think we err on the side of being content that the gospel comes in words only. Um, You can see this in a lot of um, evangelistic methods. uh, Hand out words only tracks just speak words only look if you have an opportunity to be with somebody and it's the only chance you're going to get to them there's nothing wrong with giving them words only nothing wrong Um, but Paul was concerned about so much more than that and so do we okay we need to be concerned about that um I think it's easier for us to be concerned, uh, to, to emphasize and be satisfied with it. the gospel came in words only today. And we can be less concerned about the kind of men that we prove to be when we're with people. So let's not be content with words only while being empty of God's power, not walking in the fullness of the Spirit, maybe not being fully convinced about what we believe in what we're doing. Um, Omri. He's given a reason in verse 5 as to the election of or God's choice of the Thessalonians. Correct. And he's pointing back to the way he was with them. Is verse 6 also saying because they became imitators? Is that on the same level with the way they were, uh, was was the way Paul conducted himself and the fact that he became imitators. Is that his evidence for their choice? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Do you guys understand what he's saying? And this is where making observations about uh, ministry, if I was expositing this passage, um, that would be, I'd be much more concerned about drawing that out. But uh, yeah, to, to divert on a great point you're bringing up, the way that he's trying to comfort them about their election is by pointing first to the kind of men they were. That God in his gospel mission came to them. In the kind, is proof because of the kind of men they were. It came to them in words, but it didn't come in words only. That's how they can be assured of, of their election. There's other reasons and other ways to be assured of God's electing choice. But in this passage, he's saying... Let me explain to you God's choice of you. The word, the gospel came to you, but not in words only, but look at the kind of men we were. That's proof that God elected you. And you became imitators of us also. 
and so forth. So yeah, verses 5 and 6 stand as the explanation for what he said in verse 4. Um, does that get at what you're going after? Is there something more? No. Uh, yeah. You want to add anything to that? Or? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> Not right now? No. Okay. Good. All right. John? Yeah, I guess my question would be like, if, if you're not fully convinced of something, then why are you coming? Yeah. Well, and and there's a a balance of of thought we need to have there. Um, what what's good about what you're saying is, look, guys, be fully convinced. You need to be a, men who are fully convinced about what you about what the gospel is and what gospel ministry is and what it requires and and all that. Um, and you'll you'll always be growing in becoming fully convinced. You don't arrive at being fully convinced and never grow anymore. You 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 need to always develop your conviction. So if you're going to say, well, I just, you know, I just don't feel like I know like what I need to know, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna preach. Uh, you need a, a snap on the backside because you're never going to be fully convinced in the way that you might think ideally. So be fully convinced about what you do know, right? Be fully convinced about what you do know and, and proclaim it. And where you're not fully convinced, say, you know what, I, I can be humble and I'll go. let me go study that and I'll get back with you, right? Mick? What I found is that sharing the gospel makes me more convinced. Mm, it's good. Excellent point. Trevor, do you have something? No, I was, I guess the difference between that, maybe we're always growing knowledge and conviction of the gospel. Mm. Like, is there a separation in a sense to where um, we're growing continually in knowledge, but the conviction that I was born in the end of the gospel is true, that God is who he is, and so that authority and that power is to be brought forward. Yeah. And you know, you're, you'll find that wavering at points in your life too, right? Ebbing and flowing. I mean, look, just, just, just walk disobediently for a while. And then be given an opportunity to share the gospel. Watch how courageous you are. Or not. Um, so, yeah. Now, now listen, do you know, you know that um, statement? <laughs> Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. That is not what Paul is saying. That is dumb. It is a dumb <laughs> statement. Okay, I, I'm sorry. I, I I don't usually get that blunt, but that that's dumb. <laughs> Listen, Romans 10. Can we remind ourselves um, of the importance of words? I did just say he's, that was dumb. And you know what? We're not even sure that that's actually his words. It's, it's, it's attributed to him, but we're not even sure. Um, Romans 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? A preacher must be sent. It's not a mime artist who goes. Right? And how will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, a message of Jesus Christ. That's how faith comes. Hearing words. 
The gospel must come in words. The fact that Paul is putting an emphasis on the carrier is not a de-emphasis on the fact of how important words are. Gospel words are a must. He's saying the gospel did come to you. Chapter 2, verse 2, verse 4, verse 8, verse 9. It just didn't come to you in words only. You know what kind of men we were. The gospel came. So the answer for you is shepherd your heart as men to know the gospel. Know the gospel. Know its contents. Meditate on it day and night. Know it for yourself. Know its implications in your own life of what it is, what it means for your past sin, your present sin, your future sins. Know what it means in regards to your capacity to, to now in Christ be able to have a, a, you have desire for obedience. You have a desire for God. You have a desire for his word. Know the implications of being set free from uh, the bondage of sin to be set loose and become a bondage uh, in bondage to God, to be a slave of God. Know that gospel well so that you can speak its contents clearly because another person's faith is dependent upon hearing your words, not seeing your example. You can live your example out all you want and... Faith comes from hearing, not from watching. It comes from hearing. But it's also important, it's also important to be careful and give thought to the kind of men, the kind of man you must be. They go together. These are the two burdens in Paul. Do you understand the balance? In regards to Paul's talking, he's an apostle, he's living in the, the era of Acts, and he says, We came in the power of in, in power and in the Holy Spirit. Let me just remind you of what he instructed the Ephesian believers in chapter 3, verse 16. This is one of uh, his second prayer for them. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man. You must be a man who walks in power and in the Holy Spirit. And you need to be fully convinced. That's not an Acts-only era thing. That's an an expectation Paul had for the Ephesian believers. It's an expectation for us as well. Plead with God, guys, for power from Him. Plead for more fullness of the Spirit of God in your life. Become a man who's... growing in greater confidence in the gospel at all times. What kind of man do you want to prove to be? Don't be content to just say, you know what, they heard the gospel from me today. Well, yeah, but were you a jerk? We don't want to be a jerk. Number three, ministry involves imitation. Now we'll move a little more quickly. Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, um, Paul is not saying, when I was with you, I gave you two different examples to imitate. You had the example of me over here, and you had the example of Jesus Christ over here. So you became imitators of us and, separately, the Lord. He's not saying that. What's he saying? Right? His life was in alignment with Jesus Christ. And when you were looking at Paul's example and imitating him, you were also imitating Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.1, right? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
contrast our great people in our day, former greats like Charles Barkley. I'm not a role model. You are. In Christ, you are. You never were not one. You've always ever been that. God's design is that we give others the gospel, but also an example. Plead with God for him to make you into a clearer reflection of Jesus Christ so that people can become an example uh, or they can imitate you, verse 6, and the Lord. Specifically, how, though, did they imitate Paul? Look what he says in verse 6. In that... um, you received the word in much tribulation. In much tribulation. Lots of trials. You remember in Acts 17 as we read through that? The Jews chased them out of town. And evidently they received a lot of the trouble. We need to remember, guys, always. And it's, it's easy to forget this. It's easy, I'll speak for myself. It's easy for me to forget. I, I forget that we live behind enemy lines. I forget. There, there's so little conflict uh, maybe there's growing con- conflict in our day. But there's so little conflict personally, day after day, that it, you can kind of start thinking, oh, I'm not behind enemy lines. I get along with these people. They get along with me. You know? We coexist. You can even get a bumper sticker if you want. Right? Right? But we, we don't. We're, we're behind enemy lines. And there is a rebel prince, prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, who hates our king. And he hates the messengers of his king. Um, And there's hostile rebels all around us. We live in a volatile place. And God's design and plan is that the only way to receive the gospel is while you are surrounded by enemies. You can't go someplace in this world where you're not in the world. Okay? And Paul's example to them was one of suffering. Chapter 2, verse 1, You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to come and speak to you amid much opposition. I am an example, Paul says, of I, I left suffering to come to you to suffer, and I left there, and I have still been suffering, and that's my example to you. I received the gospel amid much tribulation, and you became imitators of us, chapter 1, verse 6, and of the Lord, having received the, the word in much tribulation. It, it, Jesus said, if they persecute the, 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 the head of the house, what are they going to do to the members of the house? Right? If, if we're not experiencing any kind of persecution, would that mm. indicate that we're doing something wrong and we're not being as... It could, it could very well mean that. I don't know if it absolutely always means that, but it, yeah, when, when if we're not receiving some degree of friction, we should, we should evaluate. But I wouldn't automatically conclude that it means that you're being wishy-washy. Because sometimes it just... Look, Paul had seasons of ministry, too, where he wasn't being. Does that mean he was... Look, the goal is not to to have people hate you. (laughs) We can do that. I can do that. But the goal... Because you're going to look here at what Paul talked about, how well he was liked by them. But but you are going to... the, The general 
pool or soup that we're in is one of hostility. And so it's just good to constantly be evaluating your life. Okay, I haven't... Why have I... Why do I not see much conflict of worldviews? Is it because I'm, I've, I've grown quiet, passive? Um, or is it because I've been bold and just haven't received that? Um, you know, you have to be discerning in, in that and be careful in your evaluation. Um, notice what he says in verse 6. You receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This tribulation... Um, that they got did not kill their joy. Um, I, I, my, my way of thinking is that if I have trouble, that kills my joy. Trouble kills my joy. Joy and trouble can't coexist. That's the way I think. Joy happens when there's peace and comfort and Smoothness. That's that's joy. And that is the first indication that I am looking for my version of joy and not Jesus' version of joy. Let me show you some some encouraging passages. Go to John 15. Look how, look how well Jesus equipped his disciples on his last night. <coughs> John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So I am speaking to you, I am equipping you in this last night so that my joy may be in you and therefore then your joy will be full. Uh, you don't want your version of joy. You want Jesus' joy, okay? Go to chapter 16, verse 20 of John. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will grieve but your grief will be turned into joy. Jesus has a version of joy that goes beyond ours. Verse 22, same chapter. Therefore, you too have grief now because I won't see you, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. I think he's referring to his resurrection appearance. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Chapter 17, verse 13. Now Jesus is praying. But now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Thank you, Jesus, for praying that for me. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. See, they're behind enemy lines, even as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Um, my joy made full in you. I have my version of joy and trouble can touch it. Jesus has his version of joy and trouble cannot touch it. That's what's going on in verse 6. You received the word in much tribulation and you were joyful. It's a joy that's connected to the coming of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. 
plead ultimately um, to ultimately imitate Christ so as to be an example to others. Um, and you'll have a joyful life centered on the word in the midst of trouble. And they became imitators for a reason and for a purpose. Look at verse four, uh, number four. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Paul's going to go beyond um, imitation. So, I mean, guys, have you thought about this? Um, if we back up on verse or number three for a moment. Have you given thought of, of that you need to be worthy of imitation? And of course you need to be worthy of imitation first in the place where you live, the household you're in. Um, you older guys, for you know, your, before your wife, before your children, but, but I'd even say for you who are home and your kids and, and you know, you're, you're in your home, are you, are you worthy of imitation in your home? Um, can you imagine being a young man going through a trial that you're going through and your dad or your mom saying to you, Wow, you're a good example for me as you as you go through <coughs> this trial. That's what you should strive for as a young man to be worthy of imitation. But number four takes it beyond worthy of imitation. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives but effective lives. And we'll explain to you what we mean by effective here. Look at verses six and seven. It's a so that it indicates purpose. So verses 6 and 7 reveals uh, an imitation chain reaction that's taking place in gospel ministry. Okay, so here's the chain reaction. Christ is being imitated by Paul. Okay? And Paul is being imitated by the Thessalonians. All right, so you got Christ, Paul is imitating him, and then you got the Thessalonians, they're imitating Paul. Okay? Um, But look at verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, this is what you got to set your mind on, guys, in, for your own gospel ministry. It's not enough that you imitate Jesus. You need to imitate Jesus, but that's not enough. You must aim for imitating Christ as an example for others to imitate. Okay? If all you think about is, I'm just going to imitate Jesus. I'm just thinking about me imitating what Jesus did. What would Jesus do? Okay? And that that's all you think about. You've got to broaden it out further and say, I need to do that so that somebody sees my life and they can imitate me. But even that is not far enough. You must aim for those who are following your example to become examples for others because that's what's said in verse 7. Look at it. So that you, you ones who are imitating me as I imitate Christ, you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Listen, when was the last time you thought of this? I want to be an, an imitation of Christ. I want to be an example of Christ so that somebody else can imitate me so that they become an example to others. Look, if you've never thought about that, how many times have you hit it? What's Leo Iacocca's great thing? Uh, statement. What, what is it that he says? What? Yeah, aim at nothing and you'll hit it every time. If you don't aim for that, how many times are you going to hit it? If you don't aim at a target, how many times do you hit it? You don't. If we don't aim for that, we're not going to hit it. Why not aim for it? What, a, what an amazing 
Imitation chain reaction. Imitate Jesus. Imitate Jesus. Imitate Jesus so that you can become an example to others. But don't stop there. Imitate Jesus so that they can be, you can be an example to others so that they can be an example to others. That's what we should be aiming for. And of course, it doesn't even stop there. You'd want it to keep going. And he offers an explanation in verse 8 of this imitation chain reaction that's taken place. And it's the explanation of what I mean about how his life was an effective life. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Um, that, that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. It, it's the word that you use for an intense blast of a trumpet. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. How long has he been gone? Months, a few months. And what has the word of the Lord done through the Thessalonians? A trumpet blast from them. Three-month-old believers in Messiah. They don't even know what to do. They didn't get a chance to get instruction on how to gather probably and yet they are blasting forth like a trumpet the word of the Lord a distinct sounding forth of the word of God from them and notice how far the biblical blast went not only in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place that is one solid effective sounding forth of the gospel and all of that relatively quickly just in a matter of months And here's the key statement of how effective it was. So that, um, last part of verse 8, we have no need to say anything. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you with such a blast from Macedonia and Achaia to every place that me, the great apostle Paul, I've got nothing to say. I've got nothing to say. I have nothing to add. I have nothing to add. Paul would start to tell people about the Thessalonians. They'd say, I know. We already heard about it. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul being brought to silence? Because he was an imitation. They imitated him. And they're imitating others. And the word of God is blasting forth from them after three months or so of Paul being with them. That's an effective life and ministry that Paul had. So ministry, right, it, it needs to produce an exemplary life. But it needs to be an effective life. That we would basically, can you imagine? Look, Paul is, there are places Paul doesn't have to go to preach the gospel because the Thessalonians are blasting the word forth and he doesn't have to say anything. That's effective. Wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine that? That you will have ministered to people and you will be looking for ways or other people to talk to or explain what happened and and you wouldn't even be able to add anything to it because the news has already traveled. You would at that point think, well, my work here is done. What else is there to do? That's an effective life. We want an effective life. Not just an exemplary life. We want an exemplary life. But we want an effective exemplary life like that. So, ministry has only one message. It's the gospel. Number two, Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Number three, ministry involves imitation, yes. Number four, ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Um, Fifthly, ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Verses 9 and 10. They themselves, that's the Macedonians and the Achaeans and those in every place, those that were mentioned in verse 8, they themselves report 
They themselves report. They have a report. The people of Macedonia and Achaia and in every place, they have a report to give. And here it is. They report about two things. What was the report about? Number one, it was about us, Paul says, and it was about you, Thessalonians. Let's talk about the about us. Look at verse nine. They themselves report about us. What are they reporting? What what went out in the area? In Asia Minor? What went out? What kind of reception or what kind of welcome we had with you? What's the focus on? Again, the kind of man and men they were. There was a they can't get past how welcomable Paul was, how receivable Paul was. The emphasis is on how important the messenger is for the message again here. His manner among them, Paul's manner among them, the kind of man that he proved to be, his behavior among them wasn't an obstacle to the gospel. They didn't have to like, you know, he's just a, his, in, his message is really interesting, but man, he's, a, he's just tough to be around. It wasn't like that at all. What kind of a reception that they had when they were with him? His behavior was not an obstacle. It was a powerful compliment. His behavior was a powerful compliment for what the gospel wanted to accomplish in the lives of those that it came into contact with. How do you know that his life and the kind of man that he was, how do you know that it was a compliment to what the gospel wants to accomplish? That's the second part of the report. The report was also about you. Verse 9, last part. How you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Look, what two things go together. People being transformed and you being a receptible, receptible, a receivable kind of guy. Okay? People changing and you conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord. Being careful about the kind of man you prove to be. In the minds of these witnesses and uh, the Macedonians, the Achaeans, the believers in every place, two things stood out in their report. How welcomed or how received, how receivable Paul was and how repentant the Thessalonians were. Those are the two things that are on their mind. That's perfect. That's exactly what you want the, the conclusion to be after the gospel has gone through an area. How amazing those people were who came through. And look how changed the Thessalonians are. That's what you want. That's the goal. And this is what we mean when we say ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. You don't want to fall short of the second part of the report. Um, As much as we sometimes can be only concerned about the content of the gospel and forget that I need to be the right kind of carrier of the gospel, as much as we'll give focus to the right message and we can neglect being the right kind of messenger. There are times when we, um, I'll speak for myself, when I'm, I'm very concerned um, that I'm liked in ministry. I never get up any day and think, you know, I hope people don't like me today. And I, you're, you probably don't think that way either. We, we kind of just have this default. We want to be liked. We don't like, we don't like not being liked. Right? Or whatever. We want to be liked. 
We want to be welcomed. We want to be received well by those that we care for and that we go to with the gospel. We want that kind of report circulating about us. What kind of reception we had with you. But the Macedonians and the Achaeans and the others, they couldn't only think about that aspect of gospel ministry. They, they simultaneously thought of repentance. Repentance was tangible. It was, it was visible. It was, they could describe it. What does this turning to God from idols look like? Verse 10. You turn to God, verse 9, from idols to serve. The repentance was, 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 was evidenced through their serving. And that kind of serving is probably a worshipful kind of idea and word. To worship a living and true God. And to wait. Smed spent some good time on that in our series on waiting. Um, to wait for his son from heaven. Look, what... You love Jesus and you can't wait to see him. That's evidence of repentance. Evidence of repentance. And who is this son that they're waiting for? Well, he's the one who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. There is a coming wrath that this world will know. And we have been rescued from it. We will be rescued from it. So... Your ministry must labor in such a way, guys, that you want nothing less than repentance in others. You want transformation of life, which would include serving the Lord, which would include waiting for Jesus. If all you are is likable in ministry, if all you are is likable in gospel ministry, but other people don't actually change, that's not gospel ministry. Right? The goal is not to be a jerk. The goal is to be likable, to be godly, to be easily received by others. But you can't not think also about them changing, which means you're going to have to preach about sin, which means you're going to have to confront and admonish and rebuke and correct, which means that you're going to have to let the chips lie where they lie when you do that. So if you're among people and they really like you but they haven't changed, let that break your heart. Let it break your heart. Until repentance and transformation comes, you shouldn't be satisfied. There should be something missing that you still want. So plan to be nice. Plan to be kind. Plan to be likable. Live such that people welcome you into their lives but aim for repentance also with that receptivity. Paul was likable. He was receivable. You can read 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 about all of that. Um, But Paul was also all about repentance, was he not? And God doesn't want you to settle for half of this in your gospel ministry. You need both. Um, Those of you who are husbands and dads, I I would encourage you to start with with your wife in your home and your children. Um... As you parent, you can um, find yourself tempted at times that you just want to be liked by your kid. You just want your kid to like you. And you can finish coming through a tense moment with them coming out on the other and liking you and being going, I I did it. Maybe not. 
Because the goal is not merely for your children to like you. Your goal as you minister the gospel to them is that, yes, they like you, but that they repent of their sin. And so you have a real tangible place to work on this, a really key place to work on this in your home um, with your wife, with your roommates, with your siblings, with whomever. So these are two key pieces to emphasize. You being the right kind of man and wanting repentance in your ministry. Don't let one overshadow the other or diminish the other. Try to hold them both in tension. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to think about gospel ministry. Thank you for these men here. I pray, Lord, that you would give them much wisdom as they take steps forward into their day and um, this weekend and that they would um, trust you, um, that they would, where they feel like they have just fallen short and maybe are sensing that they just do not measure up to your word, Lord, I pray that they would remember that they are surrounded by many other men who feel the same way. And that, Lord, as we humble ourselves before you, we we trust that um, you will lift us up, give us strength to um, take steps forward in being the right kind of men in gospel ministry. Lord, help us to strike the right completion and balance that we need um, and not just focusing on making sure people have the content of the gospel, but help us to be the right kind of carrier of the gospel. Help us also to not just be concerned that people like us, but they don't change. Lord, there's all kinds of tensions here that we need to hold together in the way that your word holds them together. Um, help us to give them the proper weight that your, your word gives them, not the proper weight that I think or that they think, but that your word gives. Father, just help us to be an encouragement to each other as men in the church so that the ministry that we offer, the gospel ministry that we extend to one another in this church and beyond is one that you would love to bless. So God, we pray for you to remove unnecessary obstacles from our lives and from our ministry so that many more can come to saving faith in Jesus, so that repentance um, is clear in those who hear from us the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yo, please. Yes. Yeah, sitting here, I really appreciate you uh, bringing this to us about having an effective life and being an example. Mm. And I'm sure it's easy for all of us to be sitting here and say, yeah, I want to be an example. I'm going to start working on being an example. And I encourage, because I have seen in my life where I fail to be a good role model, of seeking forgiveness from those that I was not a good role model to because it's simple. This isn't an option that, you know, if my walk allows me to be a good example, you know, we're called to be a good example. And I know, speaking from talking to a guy with kids, you know, is when I fail to be a good role model to my kids, I need to seek their forgiveness to my spouse. And maybe if you're not there, maybe it's to a sibling, maybe it's to your roommates. But I really appreciate uh, how you packed in the world of this. Thank you. For we are called to be an example. Well, thank you for drawing that out. That's that's right and good and necessary. Um, and good uh, opportunity for us to humble ourselves. Thank and you. Now I owe Mark $20. Oh, no. Because he said he's going to come up with a 
real obscure theologian. I said, what do you mean? Because he's going to talk about Charles Barkley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Charles is, Charles is something, isn't he? <laughs> All right, on that note, we're done.